This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. As Britain marks 75 years since the Empire Wind Rush arrived, we look at the dominance of Caribbean culture on British music. London is the place for me. I remember laying in my room, laying in my bedroom, hearing blues parties on the road. Without signs of some culture, there wouldn't be any crime, there wouldn't be any job. You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shante Joseph, for The Guardian. Let's go back in time to 1948, when hundreds of people from across the Commonwealth arrived at Tilbury Docks on the Empire Windrush. And with it came a musical culture and energy that breathed fresh life into the British dance halls. And most importantly, the sound system culture that went on to influence genres from ska to reggae and lovers rock, jungle and even grime. But as all good stories start, let's go to the beginning. Waiting at the docks for the first arrivals, the press were treated to a now famous rendition. Now, now I'm told that you are really the king of Calypso singers, is that right? Yes, that's well, now, will you sing for us? Right now. Yes. London is the place for me. Lord Kitchener was a Trinidadian musician and became an icon to those first Caribbean migrants. You can go to France or America. He helped elevate Calypso music in the 1950s. Calypso was massive, and because most mainstream English record companies are kind of outposts of American companies, it came over here, and it became sort of part of dancehall culture. The only thing to stop these hooligans from causing when I say dancehall culture, I'm not talking about dancehall like Elephant Man, you know. This was how entertainment was. You had to go out to a live band. Lloyd Bradley is the UK's leading black music expert and author of Sounds Like London, 100 Years of Black Music in the Capital. There was a record label that recorded Calypso in London and they couldn't get into record shops. So what they did was went to, there was a, a West African food importer and distributor called Oti. It's the Oti brothers used to run it in South London. They took their records there. So the food distributor 
distributed them to grocery shops where Caribbeans and West Africans would shop and would find the records there. It was a cottage industry. By the 1950s and 60s, ska and reggae crept onto the music scene and with it, the arrival of the sound system. A young Caribbean immigrant, Duke Vincent Forbes, set up his rudimentary sound system in 1954 and blasted ska and calypso at chest-shaking volumes. But the ska had evolved in Jamaica in the 50s. It came over here and kicked everything out of the way. Suddenly, it's almost like uh, the means of production or whatever. It's like, I have a sound system, I can run a dance. And Jamaicans controlled the sound systems. Therefore, essentially, they controlled what was played on them. So surely, this ought to be more reflective of us. We, We ought to be hearing ourselves in this, you know? By the 1960s, Island Records and Trojan Records were established. These labels specialised in ska and reggae, bringing these new styles to the masses. There was this period, I think it was the very early 70s, it was probably from about 69 to 71 or so, it's called the the Trojan Explosion was uh, the, the term. And it was essentially this record label Trojan that had done a bunch of deals with Jamaican record producers, imported Jamaican music to release in uh, compilation albums. White kids were hearing reggae and its popularity spread like that. I think if you look at back at the charts from 69 to about 71, 72, there'll always be at least one reggae record in the top 20. Reggae brought with it a strong political message that became synonymous with the struggles for social justice. But by the 1970s, a softer, more romantic style of reggae music was starting to develop. And with it, the growth of blues dances, where the sound system culture came into its own. I remember on my sixth birthday party, I had a massive sound system party. There was a sound system in the house and all the rooms were cleared out. Sandra Cross is a legendary singer and songwriter, one of the UK's top lovers rock performers. She became known as the queen of lovers rock. I remember laying in my room mostly on a Friday and a Saturday night hearing blues parties on the roads and even seeing the guys pulling out the sound boxes and and bring it into the houses. At that time, I didn't quite understand what it was, but I knew it was a part, some sort of like a party must be going to be happening because of these big brown boxes going in. And then I, I remember just sort of watching it from the beginning until I got tired. So the beginning was just moving in and then, and then it took about an hour before you start hearing the boom, 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 you know, and, and, and then after hearing the thumping, I sort of stayed up maybe another 15, 20 minutes before I fell asleep because by that time it was probably like one o'clock in the morning. Lover's Rock was essentially pop reggae, but pop reggae created by reggae people and not pop reggae, created by mainstream pop producers. So therefore, it would have all the elements it needed, but still be very black. That was the point about it. It really was for us, by us. A pop music that young black girls could be proud of owning, that could feel part of, that people looked like them, that were like them. And that was so important at that point. 
It was a uniquely black British sound that developed in the late 70s and 80s against a backdrop of riots and racial tensions. Cultivated principally by British artists in South London, some people went to blues dances to experience intimacy and healing from the violence on the streets. The music scene was recently depicted in Steve McQueen's TV series Small Axe and paid homage to a seminal lover's rock track. Suddenly, I mean, there's this record, Silly Games, by Janet Kay that um, ended up at number two in the charts, you know. And so they've got her on top of the pops, right? She's worried about staying too late because she's got to be at work the next morning. But her manager at Xerox in Wembley gave her the morning off because she had to appear on top of the pops. So, what were these blues dances really like? I mean, those were fun times. I mean, I remember the more places we moved to as a family, the more I heard the reggae music and the parties. So at one stage, we moved to a place somewhere in Brixton called Loughborough Road. And then that's when it really took off. That's when I thought, you know what? I am going whether I'm allowed or not. I remember used to having to sort of like pack the bed with sheets and make it look like somebody was sleeping in there. And then I'd open the window and make plans with the neighbour next door. You know, I'm coming at 12 o'clock, make sure the window's open, you know, sneaking out, climbing through the window and dropping God God knows how many feet off a wall. I mean, I'd get to the blues with all scraped up legs and bleeding legs and stuff (laughs) like that. But that was where I felt that I needed to be, you know. And, And at that time, it felt like nothing could stop me. Nothing, nothing and nobody, you know. And what was it like inside? It was dark, smoky. Yeah. Some, sometimes I start to myself, what, what the hell am I doing in this place? Why am I in this place? I can't see anybody. But I think it was the music, the music and, and the vibe and everybody enjoying themselves. And um, even though it was dark and, and murky, it was still a nice vibe, you know. They started because it was difficult in London for black people or promoters to rent rooms or halls to do it. So they'd happen in in people's houses, a lot of them, you know. Furniture would be moved back, you know, um, and there'd be a small charge, you know. I remember remember going to them in the early 70s and everything was 10 pence, you know. It's like 10 pence to get in, 10 pence for a special brew, 10 pence for a curry goat, you know. (laughs) It was brilliant. There used to be loads of them would happen in schools because so many schools had West Indian caretakers who would literally open up on a Saturday night, hold a dance, it would all sweep up, and that was it. Young estate agents would be bribed to hand over the keys of an empty flat for the weekend on the condition that it was left as they found it, you know. All these things used to go on. There was a real kind of resourcefulness involved in this, you know. That resourcefulness came through in the culture around sound systems. It was a serious business. I sort of joined a sound system and I would travel with them everywhere they went in, in the area or out of the area. And they'd call me this, the mic girl. The mic, they call it. Yeah. So I'd be singing on the mic. And, and I was the only girl in a group of maybe 15 guys traveling to these blues dances. What you ended up with was this genuine 
black pop music. And Lovers Rock on the sound systems was massive. There were Lovers Rock sound systems all over the place, you know. Of course, this is going to spill out because not only is it like black pop music, it's very good pop music too. There, there wasn't pirate radio then, but you heard this stuff coming out of um, shops. You heard it on people's cassettes in their cars and this sort of stuff. So naturally, it's going to spill out into the wider environment. Records, again, when I mentioned the OT brothers um, earlier, distributing Calypso with their food, um, this was the same. I mean, Lovers Rock producers would press up records. They'd get them pressed in Ireland, mostly, because it was much cheaper to get records pressed in Ireland, drive them back themselves, and then go round the country to different outlets selling records out the back of their cars, you know. When the Lovers Rock label started, because Dennis Bavel, one of the founders of it, they got a Volkswagen camper van and fitted it out with record shelves. And the guy who used to drive it would start on Monday at wherever they kept their records, you know, their, their warehouse. And he'd go up one side of the country, you know, and get to, like, the top. I think he went as far as Glasgow. And they would come back down the other side of the country all in a week. He'd sleep in the van. With sound systems came the culture of clashes, something that would later be replicated in genres from hip-hop to jungle and grime. By the 80s, sound systems were clashing up and down the country with virtually every major city boasting a handful of crews. It was about two things. Each sound would have their supporters there and the big sound systems were supported by football teams, really. It was a contest of equipment, who had the best sounding sound, and music, who had the most exclusive music, which was exactly, it was something that was imported from Jamaica. I couldn't understand why wooden boxes would want to compete against another wooden box. I understood... <laughs> I understood g women, female girls competing against other girls and guys competing against guys, but boxes, that's the one I couldn't, I couldn't grip. It was what was coming out of the boxes. It was like, my power is, is a higher power or more deafening power than your power. So it, mm. so it was a competition between sound and, and depth. Of, of bass lines and trebles and stuff like that. And also they would get what we call dub plates, which is like special cuts of music from Jamaica. So it would be like the company would be, well, I've got I've got a dub plate from Sugar Minor. You know, you haven't got it. I'm the only one that's got it. So I'm going to play it on this box and beat it out into your system. Let you know that we, mm. we rule. That's the vibe that I picked up from them days. And as girls, we just sit down and think, yeah, all right, you boys, go and have, play, have your game. We'll just sit here and wait till you lot play some bit of Lover's Rock because we went into that. For Sandra Cross, her big break came when she released I Adore You at the age of 14. But again, she had to be resourceful to get it recorded. Yeah, it was a day when I was supposed to be at school. I sneaked, I pretended that I was going to school and I went around the corner and hid behind the bins, waited for my mum to go to work and then came back in and we had a big brown piano in, in my brother's room and I just sat at the piano and just plonked at it all day, just plonked chords. Because at that time, I could only play three chords, which was C, D, and E, I think it was. I don't read music, so I'm just guessing that it was around that. Those, those chords. <laughs> I don't either. Yeah. Your, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I just played around with three chords. That's how I, love, I, I just wrote lyrics. I just imagined a, a scenario with a guy and a girl in love, you know, and I just put the lyrics to the music, basically. And that's how Love I, I Adore You came about. Oh, yeah. 
young black kids loved reggae, but the reggae that was coming out of Jamaica wasn't really talking to them. The idea about dreadlocks sitting in a gully bank doesn't mean anything if you live in Tooting, you know. So, you know, the idea that this could become far more relevant to them, and although 80-90% of it was about love, hence the thing, lovers rock, you know, love lost, love, love sought after, you know, love achieved, right? There was an awful lot of um, cultural commentary in there. I mean, the first record on the Lovers Rock label was called I'm in Love with the Dreadlocks, and it was about a well-brought-up Christian girl who was in love with the Dreadlocks, and it was a kind of Romeo and Juliet situation, you know. The time when I was recording and, and writing, there was a lot of Things happening politically, like, you know, like um, the New Cross fire and um, the Brixton riots and all that. The police raided houses in Railton Road. Community leaders say this raid has destroyed any chances of improved relations with the police. When they see the little kids in bunch, they think they're going to commit crimes and they stop them mm. and have a word with them and see what they're doing, but they're not doing nothing. And I think that a lot of us just was kind of fed up of doom and gloom of society, the darkness of it and the, the depression of what was happening, you know, around us in society. So I think we did need a little bit of, of love and coming together of communities. We'll be back after this. Lovers Rock had its own ecosystem. Eco is economics, not ecological. Right? It had its own commercial system. Right? This has been taken up completely by junglists, for instance. Wicked, wicked, jungle is massive. Wicked, wicked, jungle. Right? Jungle, exactly the same thing. The whole jungle scene existed completely underground before it became a matter of mathematics and the mainstream industry started calling it drum and bass. Jungle emerged in the early 1990s. Its roots are widely acknowledged as stemming from black creators inspired by the sounds of the Windrush generation. Black jungle artists such as Goldie, Rebel MC and Shy FX were household names for anyone in the music sphere. 
Then John was, it was where reggae went next in the UK. This was dancehall or bashman reggae brought across the Atlantic and created on different equipment. Again, like Lover's Rock, it was dancehall, or the more extreme end of dancehall, that had the British influences put into it. Yo, what's good? It's me, D-double-E. D-double-E is a MOBO award-winning British grime MC, DJ, and record producer. He was a member of the grime collective Nasty Crew, but started his career in Jungle and UK Garage. My mum bought me a radio for Christmas. I was locked in to Cool FM a lot, mm. and which was a jungle station. I don't know how, but I was aware of Shy FX's, one of Shy FX's albums called Jungle Hits, Volume mm. 1. And it just had like all the top jungle tunes on there, like Helicopter, Wolf. Mm. That really like had me on look. Like Sandra Cross, he was in school when he found his love for music. At that time, one of my school friends called Rodney Price, but his DJ name was Terra Danger. And he had decks in his bedroom mm. and, he, and he used to live near the school. We used to, I used to go to his house do sets and then he had the link to a few other artists and DJs and somehow he introduced me to Hyper who was in Nasty Crew. From there we just connected and it's like yeah the crew just kind of came like that and we was on Rinse FM and I think that lasted a year maximum. For many black artists now, even though they aren't part of the sound system scene, the influence is clear in its association with grime. Here's Lloyd Bradley again. Without sound system culture, there wouldn't be any grime, there wouldn't be any jungle. It just wouldn't be there because it's something, it's like if you look at black music, which never strays far from its roots. There's a, an equation that happens. It's the same thing. It happens all the time and has been happening since music was invented, I reckon. A balance of magic and mathematics. When a new music form happens, it's magic. It's being put together by creative types who just, they're, they're inspired. They're doing what they're doing. It becomes popular. It becomes absorbed into the mainstream. The sound system days is part of my history yeah. of all my uncles, all my dad, everyone was there, but I wasn't. So I, I watch it and I learn it and I know it. It influenced people older than me, which where jungle come from people older than me and they were influenced by the sound system right. that brought that music to me. MCing in the dance like that is a Jamaican thing, but when the um, MCs, the jungle MCs, weren't MCing purely in Jamaican. It was this kind of um, odd sort of Cockney, London, Jamaican patois that had developed, and that made it. I mean, what I felt it said was, yeah, this is second or third generation. And even um, the way we perform, the Jamaican style, yeah, performers on response. stage, the way the presence, the way we're running down the mic, and it's like the Jamaican presence. Yeah. So I feel like that is naturally in me because I'm Jamaican. Grime was 
influenced by jungle and then jungle was influenced by the sound. In the early 2000s, pirate radio became the new sound system culture and grime crews would use stations to battle just like previous generations did. By the time you got onto grime, it was pirate radios weren't carrying it. But pirate radios run exactly like sound systems. The only difference is they're doing it on the airwaves instead of a dancehall. Pirate radio, which was essentially responsible for grime. Without pirate radio, you wouldn't have grime developing in the way it did. And pirate radio at that point owed everything to sound system culture. It was sound systems on the airwaves. And of course, when you have pirate radio, kids don't need to go to a rave or go to a blues to hear it. You've got 14-year-old kids in, I don't know, full Kirk or somewhere, listening to grime as it's supposed to be. I think that was one of the biggest things for me. I felt that things were bigger than it than it was. What would you say the impact of pirate radio was on Black British music at the time? Boy, it's like the sound system. It's like it just breeded a whole movement. There's a guy called Deep Power. He was like part of the reason why we was on the radio station. Deja Vu, and that's when Nasty Crew and Roll Deep and the grime movement started because of D-Power owning the radio station. And then you had Rince FM, a genius, and that's where Wiley was doing his come up in the, from jungle mm. through to grime on Rince. And the guy that made that radio station made it possible and while he lived there, he didn't want to go home <laughs> anytime he locked in his day. So what was the lasting legacy of the Windrush generation and their influence on British music? Grime was one of the realest musics from our genre. It's like the realest UK yeah. representer. Jungle represents us, Garage does. But Grime was representing people, personalities. Everyone's got a message. But the yeah. UK voice of Wagwan, what you're saying, that has become a trend now. And that was one of the first pushes of our voice. And we made it a language with slang. So now when you listen to UK music, it doesn't matter if it's hip-hop or whatever it is you're going to hear, the UK voice, because we love that voice now. Yeah, love is rock. We owned it. We owned it. The UK owned it. You know, you know that could be somebody could argue against that. But for me, as far as I'm concerned, UK lovers rock is a UK owned genre. You might have influences, little bit influences from Jamaica, but so did Jamaica get the influences from us. So it was a two way thing. Working in the underground by working in it, the lovers rock, the soul to soul, the jungle uh, raves in Pickett's Lock, right? It's keeping the music connected to the culture that created it. As soon as it goes into the mainstream, their job is to detach it from that culture. What happened at that point in 1948, and really it's the same kind of thing going on now. It's, right, here's an expression of the culture. Yes, the culture evolves, but the culture is still there, and music is keeping it Keeping it, I don't want to say keeping it real, because that sounds so crap, right? <laughs> How about that? Keeping it honest. 
I feel so deeply connected to this story. It makes me think a lot about my childhood, my grandparents, even my great grandparents, some of which are still alive and their history with this country, but most importantly, the huge influence that they had. Shout out my granddad, Michael Shackelford, RIP. I love you, King. This one's for you. I love the little sound system you used to have in your house and you would always play us these old ass reggae tracks when we came round. And I feel like your music and your culture really did shape this whole country and everything we know as pop culture today. Pop culture in Britain would be nothing without the Windrush generation, period. I hope you enjoyed what you heard today and make sure you check out all of the Windrush coverage from The Guardian. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya, sound design by Mao Lissetto, original music by Axel Kakute, and the executive producer is Maz Etahaj. See you next Thursday for the final episode of the series. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 